Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking about some of the books that we've recently been reading. Before we get into all that good literature, however, what is going on? Are you saying the thing that is about to follow isn't good literature, Scott? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... No, we're about to talk about two of the peaks of modern gaming literature, aren't we, in this news? We are. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, my scenario, Full Fathom 5, has just gone to print. It's been out on drive-thru on PDF for quite a while now, since last year. And it reached the Electrum level, so that means that it's now available on print-on-demand. So you can get your very own copy by heading over to drivethrough.com. There'll be a link on the the show notes. Now, uh, it's got a wonderful cover by John Sumrow, friend of the show, who has also got his own patron, which we can also link to. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. John's patron is fantastic because he does all these artworks, postcards and stuff like that. He sent me a few a little while back, which are just gorgeous, including the cover to Full Fathom 5. And, yeah, the stuff that he produces is, oh, he he does something new every month and it's just beautiful. It does make me wonder if the man actually sleeps because of the amount of output (laughs) that he puts out. It's phenomenal stuff and it must take hours to put together. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it's fantastic. For people who are on our Discord server, uh, do take a look at the self-promotion channel there and the art channel because John posts fairly regularly on those and tends to post works in progress so you can actually see how the things come together over time. It's just amazing. Talking of John, we may also have a cover from him for issue seven of the Blasphemous Tome fanzine, which is due to be coming out at the end of June 2021. Indeed, I've seen some of the initial sketches for the cover he has in mind, and oh yeah, that's good. And this issue, let's just talk about some of the, the wonderful submissions we've had for it, because so uh, we've had some great stuff come through. Yeah, I've been going through editing the submissions recently, and yeah, we've had some amazing contributions from our listeners. We've got a short story from Noah Lloyd called Chris Taps. My brain strains to get round the inverted mythology of H.P. Lovecraft by Greg Osborne, which looks at legends and myths and how Lovecraft takes a, a very different approach to them. Well, particularly looking at the mythic approach of Joseph Campbell mm. and uh, talking about how Lovecraft is pretty much the antithesis of it. And yeah, as a, a work of scholarship, it's a fantastic little article. I, I, I love that. Some of our listeners are very clever people. <laughs> yeah, much cleverer than us. <laughs> yeah. I should have realised the connection earlier, actually, thinking about that. Campbell wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces, didn't he? Uh, looking at the uh, the origin of uh, heroes in hero myth. And then thinking, yeah, there's a certain god out there with that amount of faces, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Ah. <laughs> and also, Arif Dyer, has, uh, <laughs> he sent through a, an interesting autopsies on uh, three strange deaths. There's some very strange people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I've been mm. getting some shudders while editing those. 
Hopefully not too prescient. It's like skipping to the end of your own book, isn't it? It's like, ah, okay, is this how it's going to end? <laughs> and we've also had an article called Two-Fisted Horror from Evan Perlman, which goes into taking inspiration from hard-boiled detective fiction and noir fiction and applying them to Call of Cthulhu. And he's got some great ideas in there. Awesome stuff. So to get hold of a copy of issue 7 of the Blasphemous Tome fanzine, if you're subscribed to us on Patreon by the end of June, then that will be, depending on which reward tier you go for, that will be a reward that will be winging its way to you. We'll put a link in the show notes that explains all about who gets what at different levels and what you can expect. It's kind of whether they're delivered by Bayeke or Shoggoth. Or just beamed directly into your dreams. And now on to our main topic, books. They're great. Well, that was quick. Last year, we did this series of episodes for our Patreon backers in which we talked about the different media we've been consuming and how they've been informing our gaming lives. As we did a couple of months ago with television, we thought it might be nice to continue some of these within our main episodes and talk about what we're consuming and how we might draw upon it for gaming. And so this time is the turn of books. Yeah, so Scott, what have you been reading? The book I'm talking about is My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. His editor, Joe Monty, actually turns out to be a regular listener of The Good Friends and very kindly sent me an advance reader's edition of this book, which will come out at the end of August this year. You can pre-order it now. Now, you may well have heard me talk about Stephen Graham Jones on the podcast before. He is one of my favourite contemporary horror writers. In fact, when we talked about our favourite media, uh, the 2010s, I chose his novel, Mongrels, as my favourite novel at that period. Jones is an incredibly prolific writer. I mean, he's been working for a few decades, but he's produced, I I think, something like 18 novels during that time and several collections of short stories, a bunch of novellas. And he is also a professor of English at the University of Colorado. And this book, My Heart is a Chainsaw, is sort of a, a love letter to slasher films and horror in general, but particularly slasher films. And this is something that Jones has written about a few times before. He wrote a book which I must admit I didn't enjoy particularly called The Last Final Girl some years back, which was a meta slasher film written as a sort of screenplay, which had some interesting ideas, but I I couldn't quite connect with. And also his last novel, The Only Good Indians, is sort of a supernatural revenge tale with sort of slasher film elements and is just remarkable. I cannot recommend that book highly enough. But this book is in some ways a much more straightforward take on the genre, but at the same time, again, a quite a clever sort of meta commentary. So... The story takes place in a small town called Proof Rock in Idaho, which is on the shore of a lake called Indian Lake. And this is a town with a weird, dark history. There are all sorts of local folk tales about an old preacher uh, called Ezekiel 
whose parish was covered by the lake when a dam was built and the old town flooded, but who chose to stay down there. And there's also supposedly the ghost of a murdered girl called Stacy Graves who stalks the area. Decades ago, there were a series of murders at a campground that is just on the outskirts of the town in the woodland there. And so this is like all the elements of the history that might go into a horror film or a slasher film all set up. In the present day, there's now more disruption and weirdness coming to the town because there's a new community that's being built that's stirring up a lot of the old ghosts. This community of the ultra-wealthy called Terra Nova that's being built on the far side of the lake and is providing the sort of weird intrusion into the lives of the people in the town. And our protagonist in this book is a teenage girl. She's a high school senior, so I think she's about 17, called Jade Daniels. Her father is... This is one of the things I think I mentioned last time we talked about Jones, which is he's a Native American of the Blackfeet tribe, but he uses the term Indian very much as opposed to Native American in his books. And I'm never quite sure as an outsider what the the right nomenclature is. For the purposes of this book, I will use the word Indian just because it's what's used all the way through this. Apologies if I'm causing any offence by doing so. I am clueless. So Jade, she's half Indian. Her father is uh, is Indian. Uh, her mother's white. And they split up some time back. She lives with her father and has this incredibly dysfunctional relationship with him and his rather skeezy friends who ogle her. And it's it's all incredibly uncomfortable. She herself is a sort of classic loner misfit character with strong self-destructive tendencies and obviously a lot of baggage that she's carrying with her. She's a mediocre student who might not be passing at the end of the year. This is all set at the end of her academic career, but she's in danger of not graduating. But she has this history teacher called Mr. Holmes who she likes and who has sort of encouraged her to express herself by allowing her for the history class to basically to ignore the curriculum and submit all these essays on the history of horror that work more as film and literary criticism than history. These essays punctuate the book and they are both insightful analyses of the genre and its tropes and so on, but also this sort of very personal relationship with horror. This typifies Jade. She is someone who sees the world entirely through the lens of horror films. And in other stories like this, this might make her a villain or it might make her a weird, dangerous character. But in this case... Horror is her safety. It's it's what heals her. It's what makes her a completely sympathetic character. And I think you know a lot of people who grew up as horror fans will sort of see a lot of themselves mm. in in her and her relationship with the genre. For all her faults, and she has plenty of faults throughout the book. For all her faults, she is a, a really sympathetic, engaging character, sardonic, intelligent, but you know completely broken at the same time. The story itself really gets kicked off when there are a few murders in town, a few weird deaths. And Jade 
decides that she is living in a slasher film, that this is a slasher film that has come to life in her town. And because of the way that she sees the world through through the films that she loves, she brings a lot of preconceptions and rules and so on to what is happening that may or may not be accurate. And that sort of disconnect between what she perceives as being the rules of this story that she now thinks she's in and the way the world actually works is what drives a lot of the conflict of of this book she decides that if there is a slasher a classic slasher operating in the town then obviously the slasher needs a final girl as his nemesis but jade she knows that from the rules of slashes that the final girl has to be this pure virginal figure and she believes that she cannot meet that herself so when she encounters a new student in the school lena mondragon who's one of these rich kids who's just come into town jade immediately sort of sees something pure and wonderful in her and decides that this is the final girl the town and this story needs and so basically grooms her or tries to groom her as a final girl and the way she does this is getting all these essays that she's written for school and using them as a training manual sort of approaching this poor and suspecting girl and sort of saying right yeah this is what you are here's what you need to do and so on and i mean obviously as you might expect this does not necessarily go down the way that jade plans and leads to all sorts of complicated personal stuff with her and then the law in town and so on but it's a weird relationship that goes in unexpected directions mm. that applies entirely to the the story in general i mean this is a dense rich story with lots of layers of small town history folk mythology the complications of everyday life it it works as both a horror story and a story about horror to some extent jones did this or something similar in his previous book, The Only Good Indians, which was, I'd say, a sort of combination between a slasher-come-ghost story and an exploration of how myths are created. With this, I think this is more a sort of meta-commentary on the mythology of slasher films and the way that horror fans see the world. In terms of the way it's written, I'd love Jones's prose, but I can see that it's not for everyone. Jones, in this book and a few of his other books, has this approach of using this very tight, limited perspective, third-person narrative, in which he describes very much the sensory impressions of what the characters are seeing. So you don't get a lot of interpretation of what's going on. Sometimes characters are in confusing situations and weird shit is happening around them and they're sort of seeing bits and pieces and you as the reader are there trying to piece this together because it's not being presented to you necessarily as a narrative but more as a series of impressions and events the overall effect is really quite disquieting at times it conveys that feeling of chaos and fright when you're in a disquieting situation you can't quite work out what's going on and things do get pieced together and you can eventually understand what's happening but it is deliberately quite confusing at times yeah i mean it sounds both in it the method that it tells it and in the story that it's very much the way towards like horror genre fans 
absolutely. I mean, this book is 100% for horror fans. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what the reception would be like outside for uh, horror fandom. Mm, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. Because, I mean, Jones is on the verge, I'd say, of breaking through to the big time now. His books have been selling more and more, and The Only Good Indians did really quite well. And this is getting a bigger launch. The only reviews of it I've seen so far have been from horror platforms like bloody disgusting Mm. who obviously absolutely love it but i'm just wondering whether when this reaches say the guardian or something like that what their critics are going to make of it Mm. from what you've described of the writing style i think i might this just me with me as a preference i might find that particular style a bit frustrating Mm. but the one thing that definitely does appeal that 2d8 impaling weapon as a title and the chainsaws are great. I ended up, I ended up <laughs> using one in, when we played voice on the phone recently, and I can wholeheartedly recommend them. There aren't actually any chainsaws in this book. What the hell? There are two things wrong with this title. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh. <Aww. laughs> no one gets the heart ripped out, and it's not done by a chainsaw either. Oh. Uh. Miss Selling. But yes, I wholeheartedly recommend this book. If you're a fan of horror films, or horror in general, but particularly horror films, and the horror films of the 70s and 80s particularly, then you'll find a lot in the way that Jade presents the world and the essays that she writes that will just connect with you. The story itself is fantastic. As I said, it goes in some unexpected directions. For a lot of it, I was wondering, is this actually going to be a horror story or is it just a story about horror? But I mean, at the end, it's all balls to the wall horror with lots of blood and guts and gore. But mm. at the same time, a very sort of perversely subtle, intelligent take on all the blood and guts and gore. Matt, what have you got for us? Well, I went back to an author that I haven't read for a fair while. We've talked about him a few times on the podcast, particularly in some of our early episodes where we looked at Hellraiser, which means this will be no surprise, Ah. this is Clive Barker that I've gone back to. I've read a few of his books, read The Hellbound Heart. We also looked at Nightbreed, the film, didn't we? Yeah, I've read Cabal, the book that's based on. And yeah, then there's a, this other slim volume which I've got up on my shelf, sandwiched between these breeze blocks of his uh, <laughs> later work. Anything from pretty much Great and Secret Show through to Imagica, Everville, they are pretty pretty mm. thick tomes. But then you've got a couple of small ones in there as well. The Thief of Always, which you wrote, which was a almost like a children's book, but it was also mm. for adults as well, for them to probably read to their kids. And then a little bit further on, sandwiched in between volumes two and three of his Aberrant series, which are also for kids, although they are also pretty heavy books. Not so much the size, but they were printed on quite thick, glossy paper because there's a lot of full-colour illustrations in those books. So they are deceptive. You think, oh, this is okay, and then you'll suddenly go, whoop! You can almost drop it as you pull it off the shelf. They are heavy. There's this little thin volume called Mr. Begone, and that's the one that I decided to pick up. Because I'd read the blurb of this quite a while ago. I mean, it was only published in October 2007, so it's not that old. The high-level overview basically said, this is a book about a demon trapped in a book. So I thought, okay, this could be good. This would be uh, something that's kind of reminiscent of our examination of Malefique, perhaps, Mm. that we looked at, again, a long time ago. But yeah, it's written in first person, pretty much, and it opens up with this, what you think might be a narrator, basically urging the reader, hey, you, the guy that's holding me, 
burn it. <laughs> this is a thread which goes all the way through the book. It kind of intersperses with sections where this demon is talking directly to the reader and trying to convince them, please just burn this book. In various different ways, at first tries like seduction, persuasion. It's almost like he's going through all the different interpersonal skills on the Call of Cthulhu sheet that he's decided, well, I didn't pass that role, so I... I'll maybe try a push roll. No, that one failed as well. Okay, I'll move on to the next skill. No, I'll fuck that one up too. And he just keeps on going and going, trying different, <laughs> uh, different methods of persuasion or different methods to try and convince the reader to destroy this book for... I mean, he, he slightly tweaks his reasoning for doing so. It's like, please put me out of my misery. Please free me. And it goes through various different arguments depending on which approach he uses. But along the way, it's like, oh, okay, I, I can understand why you're reading. I'll, I'll better tell you a bit more about me. And then uh, slowly his story starts to unfold in between these different pleadings. I mean, it's asking the reader you to destroy the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's clearly never heard of Matt Sanderson because there's no way you're going to destroy a book. There are other options, but I'll, I'll get to that. Ah. But he landed with the shittiest possible reader he could for that. Any <laughs> chance of getting what he wanted. Even to the point where I don't own just one copy of this, I own two. I got the regular copy, the mass-release hardback for this. I don't have the softback because Tiff convinced me a while back to try and ditch all my paperbacks and replace them with nice, uniform, shiny hardbacks on the shelf. So I've got the hardback version and a limited edition copy of this as well that they released in a nice little slipcase. A few of Barker's books have got these. and this If you wanted to look for a limited edition or special edition Barker book, this is probably the one to start with because the others are horrendously expensive, but this one isn't too bad. The others can go for horrendous amounts. I think there's a copy of Imajika that's just been released as a limited edition set that's about $5,000. Wow. So, yeah, that you can get pricey. Yeah, they selling it by the pound. <laughs> but you start to, in between these different passages where he's talking directly to you, you get to know a little bit about this demon. And ultimately, which I won't reveal fully because I think that would spoil the book as to why he ends up being bound in the book because that is like the big secret of what's going on and there's a definite kind of ooh moment that you reach in the book and that's probably where I'll stop my description that you have this little demon called Jackabock Botch so he's already got a mouthful of a name that's describing his little upbringing as a little child demon in the ninth circle of hell from here, he, uh, Barker really starts to lay the uh, the format of how he's going to describe things from the start. That this feels somewhere between a children's book and an adult's book, which, given that it was written in the middle of the Aberrant series, as, as mentioned, probably not too shockingly a surprise that he was in probably a similar kind of gear. There are definite moments in this which would be, if you were to put it on screen, you would think, holy shit, this, where's the 18 certificate? Mm. But the way he just puts it on paper quite nonchalantly skipping ahead to a later scene is probably the best example, is where he's just described the fact he's kidnapped all these babies from the surrounding towns, he sliced their throats, squeezes all the blood out, and has this lovely warm blood bath. But it's done in such a nonchalant, kind of matter-of-fact way, and even the travelling companion he has at that point in the book, just like kicking these dead babies out of the way to get to the door, you think, yeah, okay, this is uh, the way this is told is completely incongruous to the images that have been portrayed here. <laughs> right. Is it getting away with it in the way that fairy tales do? You know, like Grimm's fairy tales had some really horrible stuff in them, but because of the way they're told, they're tales for children. Very much like that. This does strike in a lot of ways as a kind of a fairy tale, although depending on some of the aspects later in the book, probably a fairy tale told in the world of cult. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely some high-level moving and shaking that takes place towards the end of the book. Mm. Botch, because I won't try and pronounce his surname over and over again, uh, his first name rather over again, 
basically has a traumatised childhood, even as a demon, even in hell. <laughs> His father is a complete monster, no pun intended, that abuses the kid. The kid, very almost similar to what Scott was describing about the girl writing the essays, Botch decides to write lots of little short stories that he keeps in papers to himself about how he kills his father and tortures him in repeated different fashions, hmm. and how he tortures all the other kiddie demons that he doesn't like, all because they make fun of him for having a little tail that goes, got kind of splits in two, and that he's different. There's an incident where he gets burnt quite badly, and this is something that comes up in his description quite a lot afterwards, that basically falls in a, almost think of it as like a burning oil drum, basically full of fire, and he gets burnt from pretty much head to toe, and he's quite badly disfigured. What does the father do? Pushes him back in the drum and saying, hey, learn your lesson, you little brat. And eventually he decides to run away from home, and it's this weird fantasy urban landscape that he describes that hell has at least this circle of hell has lots of like junk piles around and it's very industrial he ends up running up into the junk heaps to try and get away from his father and both of them get trapped in this net when they basically fall for a piece of bait on the end of a line i think it's uh, like a piece of steak that's hanging off this hook. Of course, they go forward, grab the meat, start eating, and then the net that's below them traps them and starts pulling them up through all different circles of hell up to the world we know. Except given that this whole industrial landscape and these junkyards have been described, he emerges in the 14th century in Europe, where he's been caught by this group of effectively demonic fishermen Oh, wow. They're not demonic themselves, but they are fishermen that uh, mm. throw their lure down this big hole in the ground and try and pull up a mm -hmm. demon. Because they can kill the demon and use the body parts to sell to various different occultists and various different practices of the arcane mm. arts because of their properties. Following this section, there is a wonderful combination of horror, comedy, outright absurdist encounters that he has trying to get away from these hunters until he runs across the path of another demon who's already been up on the surface for quite some time. And they they basically join forces. The older one says, come on, Botch, you can come with me if you want. I'm going around the world causing havoc, but also looking for... And this is... It's almost like just a throwaway comment at the time. He's looking for interesting machines that when rumour comes up about them, that he wants to see things being invented. And that... He's basically heard about some stuff being built somewhere and says, well, you can always join me and we can wander around for a while. So he agrees. And skip forward 100 years, it's literally just, and then 100 years later in the book, <laughs> it describes how they've wandered around Europe in this 13th, 14th century setting, causing all sorts of hell and some very horrific things, but again, just told in a kind of an offhand fashion, that they come to learn about a particular item being built. In this little place, I think it's pronounced Mans or Mans, by this little obscure goldsmith called Johann Gutenberg. Yes. They're going to go and see what all the word is. And that's the point where pretty much the book really kind of grabbed my interest. The kid section about his life in hell really kind of, uh, this is a bit too kiddie-like for me and it's a, it's not really holding my interest. When he was pulled to the surface, oh yeah, this is getting interesting and some really outright weird moments there. But it's when they go to go and find out what this printing press is that you have some very weird and wonderful depictions of angels and other demons that are all circulating gathering to see what this thing is about and that how it will mm. on one hand end the world as they know it but also be the start of something wondrous and new and the 
kind of the secret behind why these two groups have come to town. Ultimately, when he finds it out, he is subject to being turned into the word. There's the mm. um, the line that goes all the way through the book, unsurprisingly, with the connection with Gutenberg, of in the beginning there was the word and the word was God, that he is taken away as a demonic form and his whole essence is transformed into words and those words are used by the printing press to be bound into a book and that's the book that you as the reader are holding nice that sounds great yeah yeah it, it is wonderful for the, the, the first say the first half push through it honestly because it's not so great but the second half of the book was phenomenal really really enjoyed it how long is this book i mean you said it's not a massive tome it wouldn't be for me to get through it <laughs> no no but like it's not a thousand page thing because like the ones i've read of, of barker the longer ones it has yeah. felt like it would have been better if you'd have stopped about halfway mm. yeah like weave world all that stuff with the demon in the desert it's like did you really need to bolt all this on the end you could have stopped before you got to that that's what put me off reading barker i mean i've read everything of his up to and including the great and secret show as it came out and loved it well the great and secret show was beginning to lose me at that stage and then i think it was imajika that came out after that and yeah at that stage i just gave up because it had gone from feeling like this sort of really dynamic exciting fast moving stuff to an absolute fucking slog I got through halfway through Majika and then just lost it. It seemed to reach a natural conclusion where it could have been, this is the end of a book in a series, and I just stopped. One day mm. I'll go back. But no, um, Mr. Begon's mm. only about 250 pages. Yeah. yeah, it is really, really good. And say for anyone who wants to run cult or wants to get inspiration for demonic entities, and particularly just making angels really fucking weird, then this is the book for you. Yeah, that sounds like a really good resource, yeah. Well, I think that's one thing he did very well in Weave World as well, because I mean, when you were talking about the demon in the desert, that was actually an angel, the the scourge. Well, angels, demons. <laughs> but he, I think, did a fantastic job of presenting how terrifying angels, as they're described in the, the Old Testament, are. I think that was actually one of my favourite parts of Weave World, just to be contrary. The fact that he did make this angel just so absolutely fucking terrifying. Hmm. I mean, I haven't read Weave World yet, but the way that he very distinctly draws the line between saying this is an angel and this is a demon, demons are very almost like lizard-like in this setting. They can take the appearance of humans mainly by wearing their skin or just by trying to pass himself uh, off as saying, yeah, my mother dropped me in a fire when I was a baby and that's why I'm all this horrible burnt disfigured thing up till angels can take the appearance more easily of humans but are essentially beings of pure light but they can completely re-warp and twist reality around them but he describes that he tries to yell to his friend at one point the demon this is trying to yell uh, yells to his friend to say look out the woman behind you is actually an angel and he describes the words leaving his mouth turning to pearls and then turning to light floating away into the air just because the angel didn't want the warning to be heard hmm yeah, thoroughly recommend it. It was a really, really good book. So, Paul and special guest Emily, what book are you talking about? Well, we're going to talk about an old book by the name of Beowulf. I thought Seamus Heaney only released it a few years ago. It wasn't written by Seamus Heaney, <laughs> Matt. Mm. <laughs> I jest, I looked at it at my English Lit course as well. Now, uh, a very brief history, because this book has been around a long time. Do you want to give us a brief potted history of it? Like, just a couple of lines of intro. I mean, people are going to have heard of this. So this is my daughter, Emily, just to introduce, who has studied Beowulf. Yeah, I did just 
finished my English course recently and I did some courses on Beowulf. So yeah, it was written around the year 1000, roughly, but it's passed down through oral tradition. So originally it's quite a bit older than that. I think it was around 500, 600 kind of time. I'm not that good on my dates. But yeah, it's from at least a good few hundred years earlier than that. And the original is in Old English, which is pretty different to Modern English. Yeah, you've got to have a range of modern translations. So Seamus Heaney's done a nice poetic one. And uh, Dad's just read the Tolkien, which is in prose. But uh, it's a really good one as well. Yeah, now you said Old English. Now, when you first said Old English to me, I'm imagining not all of our listeners are going to be versed in all this stuff. So I think we can address it to people who had the same sort of understanding or lack of understanding (laughs) that I did. So when we look back... We've got like Shakespeare, you know, and when you read Shakespeare, he's got thee and thou and cants and thine and and words that nowadays feel a bit archaic, but you can read it. It's pretty accessible to the modern reader. Then if you go back to Chaucer, people might mistakenly think that's old English because Chaucer, you know, some of the words in there, Emily, would you say some of those are a bit tricky? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So like Shakespeare's early modern English, so it's still modern English. It's just got some archaic language in it. Chaucer is Middle English, so you can get through it without much familiarity, but you're going to struggle to read it without, unless you're fairly familiar with it, you're going to struggle with it without having maybe an early modern or a a medieval dictionary on hand. There's quite a lot of different language that's going to be totally unfamiliar. And then if you go back to Old English, at a glance, it's, it's a completely different language. When you study it, you can see where things have come from but it's comparable to studying old norse or something like that yeah because when you first started studying it i was expecting something more like chaucer and then i looked at what you said because you said oh you know you study the old english the original text and i looked at it and i thought i can't make head or tail of that (laughs) it's got some of the letters i mean what are they called thorns and thorns and f's which are kind of like different versions of a a th sound otherwise you've just got sort of letters with accents and uh, an ash Things like that that do crop up in, now you'd get in modern Icelandic. So there's a good handful of new letters. So should we just touch on the the story of Beowulf just to give a kind of overview? Okay, so it's a heroic story. It follows the adventures of Beowulf. At the start, he's a sort of up and coming, well, you wouldn't call it a knight back then, but the sort of old English equivalent hero. And you see him fighting Grendel and then Grendel's mother. And then he returns home, uh, becomes king and eventually faces off with the dragon at the end. And these fights, I mean, because a lot of our audience are like role players. (laughs) And I have to say, a lot of these fights, there's some good scenes in there. Mm. I mean, if you're purely looking at from a Dungeons & Dragons perspective, you've got a fantastic battle with a dragon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's some pretty gory stuff with the Grendelkin at the beginning as well. You get him sort of ripping Grendel's arm off and diving down to an underwater cavern to fight this ancient descendant of Cain and lots of uh, Dungeons and Dragons-y kind of stuff going on. And lots of biblical stuff as well. Like you said, Mm. the sons of Cain and uh, Grendel being descended from the giants in the Old Testament and so on. Actually, that's something I wanted to ask you about because reading the Seamus Heaney version, I was very taken with how much Christianity there was woven into it. But when I say woven into it, it felt 
actually less woven into it than bolted on. So I, I assume this was a kind of older pre-Christian story that got Christianized as it developed. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's the general, I think there's sort of arguments that are made about that. But that's the general opinion, I think, is that certainly it was comes from a pre-Christian times. It has a lot in common with some Old Norse stories. There are sort of analogues in Old Norse of ancient heroes, which are definitely not Christian at all. And you can see that in the representation of Beowulf, who's largely not following sort of Christian morals. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely celebration of non-Christian things, even in this relatively modern sort of written down version of it. But at the same time, it would have been written likely by a monk. And you kind of get this pasted on the bits that he likes about Christianity. But I think it definitely comes through that that old heroic ideas still appealed, which is one of the most interesting things about it because it kind of captures this time when England was in the process of, it had sort of had been converted to Christianity, but it wasn't a, you know, cut and dry one to the next. There was definitely a long period where it still had those old heroic ideals being celebrated and then into, yeah, like you say, interwoven with the new Christian ideas. Yeah, because it did feel at times like whoever was writing it down was getting really into the heroic stuff and then every now and then it was, oh shit, hadn't mentioned God for a bit, better mention God, right, okay, <laughs> got that out of the way, let's get back to the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely quite a bit of that in there. Um, a lot of ambiguity then between the characters like Beowulf who will talk about God for a bit, but then clearly isn't really a Christian character. Mm. But then I think also some of those Christian values do come through, maybe values that would have been in common with even old heroic things. So at the end, you get sort of discussion. The final description of Beowulf describes him as being sort of mild and caring for his people and uses a lot of similar language to what was used in hagiography at similar times. So, mm. And I think some of that is quite heartfelt. So a lot of it's kind of pasted on. But then they also kind of find the places where maybe there's some kind of human overlap between Christian values and heroic values. And that feels quite genuine as well, I think. And something I wanted to ask you is about the way it's written. Because when you look at the original, well, um, a transcription of the original, it comes in these half lines. So each line is divided into two half lines. And it doesn't really use rhyme it uses alliteration yeah so that's like old english poetic technique you get it in other old english poems as well so old english written wouldn't have been written in lines at all originally it was written they didn't use new lines for their poetry if you look at the manuscript it's just written it looks like prose it is in verse but they distinguish their verse they don't use rhyme sounds they use yeah alliteration so you have the lines are split into two half lines and Usually you'll get a word starting with the same letter and there'll be three of those words in a line. So that's usually what's going to distinguish a line. And then the half lines kind of work because in Old English, phrases don't have to be ordered the same as they do in Modern English. There's a lot more flexibility in how you structure your sentences. So with the half lines, that's why you get these kind of little repeated ideas in the same sentence even and they can sort of interlace them all together and they use the half lines to do that. So you might get repeated descriptions of the same things in lots of different language, but they'll have a little half line describing it and then a line moving on to something else. And then they'll have another half line describing that thing again differently. And it's that interwoven kind of structure they use that for. And there are some bits in the manuscript which have been burnt away. This is really like finding an old tome that is like mustering away. We've got, we've got one copy of this, a manuscript, and this was 
badly damaged in a fire back in 1731. The whole thing could have been lost to us quite easily. One of my interests in this is the overlap with Tolkien, which is massive. And Tolkien was a, we all know who Tolkien was, but he was an Oxford scholar and he, he had a particular interest in Beowulf and he did a translation of it and gave lectures on it and so on. And he makes the point that some old English words only exist in Beowulf now. Oh, wow. Some singular words. That's our only source of them. So a lot of the translation that you've done, Emily, when you've been studying it, isn't there a lot of debate about or discussion about what some of the words mean? Yeah, and if we're going to discuss the fire, I think we should probably mention that it was at Ashburnham House, which is one of the greatest coincidences of the (laughs) (laughs) history. But yeah, so when you're translating, definitely there's a lot of debate to be had over the exact meaning of words. That's what I wrote my dissertation on, so I just took two words. Often you can just select all of the occasions that those words have ever been used in recorded written works and look at overlap between what they're used for, look at similar cognates in other like European languages to get an idea of really what did that word mean at the time because there might be a direct line to a modern English word but it doesn't mean that they mean exactly the same thing. So like when I wrote my dissertation I was writing about the man of mildost which is often just used as a translation as mildest of men because it sounds similar to mild, right? Mm. But there are other arguments that that idea of mildness at the time might not have been Christian mildness like we have now. It might have been referring to a sort more like magnanimity, is that the right word? Like a king's kindness to his people, like generosity, which would be then be a heroic ideal rather than a Christian ideal. So yeah, there's a lot of debate over the meaning of words. You talked about the similarity in the alphabet to Icelandic. I mean, when you're looking at the meanings of these words, are you helped at all by other Germanic or Nordic languages and the way that they might have survived in those? Or Yeah, for sure. So like modern Icelandic is in terms of literary development, closer to like Middle English. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the difference between modern Icelandic and Old Norse is really not that big. So that can be really useful for then looking at similarities between Old Norse, which is quite similar to Old English. And then you might look at like Old High German, Old French. And often you'll see you use translations to Latin because there are loads of like biblical texts where you'll get an Old English translation. So you have like the Old English Judith, which is quite different to any like Latin sort of Judiths you'll get because it's much, much gorier because hmm. you get those heroic joys kind of coming through in it. So yeah, biblical translations are really useful for that as well. So you get it because you get them in so many different languages. And also we get a thing called kennings, yeah, which you seem to like. Yeah, so it's one of the things Old English is famous for. So like uh, the Wales Road and like the the sun being the, uh, the sky. sky candle, was that it? Yeah, they like to like link their, link their words together like that and come up with these um, really beautiful bits of imagery. One thing I'm, I'm intrigued by with what you were talking about before with the Christianization of it was the way that you refer to Grendel as being of the lineage of Cain. Now, I'm guessing that if this was a pre-Christian story, then Grendel must have started out as something else. What would he actually have necessarily been in in the mythology of the time? That's kind of an interesting question. There's a lot to be said about Grendel and the Grendel kin, because you get he fights Grendel and his mother, right, mm. which he referred to collectively as the Grendel kin, as almost like a uh, another tribe or a 
sort of barbarian group. They're very much set up as being in the wild, being other. So you have Hero, the hall, which is full of light and noise and music, but that's actually imposed upon this ancient landscape, which is where Grendel and his mother intrinsically belong, and they're disturbed by the music. So there's actually quite a lot of modern criticism coming through which argues that we can read it almost from Grendel's side mm. as him being like a the native people who were imposed upon almost by imperialist groups coming and like they build their um, their hall and then Grendel and his mother are you know seen as monstrous, but actually they just want their nice peaceful fens back. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, there's they and- seem to represent the other essentially. And also, interestingly, in the book that Matt just talked about, you talked about a tortured demon, Matt. Oh, yes. Which really put me in mind of Grendel. He's kind of this demonic, almost demonic figure, but he is quite tortured. Um, Yeah, I mean, you get that. I think maybe you're thinking of the... Because you read the Grendel story, right? Yeah, the John Gardner. Um, Which has got some really good stuff thinking about Grendel's perspective. I don't know if... You could see him as tortured. I think tortured might be putting it a little bit far... But maybe, I mean, he like, I think I get the impression they like their isolation how they were before. There's nothing to indicate that they necessarily hate being how they are. But when the hero, when all those people come and set up hero, then yeah, he's tortured by the noise of the, the joy of the hall. Because you certainly seem to have a sympathy for Grendel and Grendel's mum, <laughs> I thought. Yeah, I like them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she is my daughter, so what can I say? <laughs> but, I mean, Grendel seems to be such a minor character in the story. It's, it's weird reading it again for the first time in Donkey's Years last week. I'd forgotten that Grendel barely appears in the whole thing, given the whole length of the story. I mean, he's actually described for a tiny fraction of it. Yeah, I, I don't know why he's gotten to be so famous, because I've spoken to people before. Like, we spoke to Sam the other day, and she said... We were talking about the dragon and she sort of said, oh, well, the dragon's not that big of it, is it? It's all about Grendel. And it's like, well, the dragon's got as much airtime as Grendel has. Oh, more. More or less. I guess Grendel just captures the imagination. He's a bit more unique. We get dragons in other places. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Reading one of the essays that Tolkien wrote about this, or one of the questions that, that comes to me is, yeah, this is old. This is like over a thousand years old, this story. It's one of the, you know, defining old english tales of which we don't have too many but why is why do people spend so much time studying it you know what what is the appeal of it really we you know we had loads of stories since then is it just because it's really old what would you say what's the appeal (laughs) difficult to say i think a part of it is just the the poetic technique when you get into that is really really refined i mean i don't even really understand it very well but i've certainly had brief conversations with my professors where they've sort of been like we can't even go into this because it's too complicated but their poetic technique is just insanely complex and beautiful (laughs) and i'm like cool (laughs) also i think those old heroic ideas and ideals are still there underlying our society those i don't know yeah those monsters i guess uh represent things that we're still scared of and still relate to i'll throw a tolkien quote at you there's a few things he said that i thought were really interesting one of them like you said about the the beauty of the poetry tolkien talks about the other critics as kind of taking this thing and looking at the history of it and we're serious people so we need to study this very academically get the impression Tolkien really doesn't like that he Mm. he really feels they're they're missing something and the paramount thing for Tolkien is the beauty of the art of this 
Everything else is secondary to Tolkien. But, but he also makes the point that he sees why they do that. And he says, correct and sober taste may refuse to admit that there can be an interest for us, the proud we, that includes all intelligent living people in ogres and dragons. It cannot admit that monsters are anything but a sad mistake. So it's like these people are ashamed to say, oh, actually, I really like this bit about the dragon and the, mm. and the monsters. And they make themselves focus on the history and the, the literary technique and all that stuff, when really that's yeah. the, the core of the story. And he says that if there were a real discrepancy between theme and style, that style would not be felt as beautiful, but as incongruous or false. And that incongruity is present in some measure in all the long old English poems, save one, Beowulf. So he's saying that all of them, it doesn't really quite work, but in Beowulf, the whole fantasy of these monsters and the art of the poetry totally work in a way that is perfect. It's a rip-roaring adventure tale, fundamentally. It's mighty warriors, it's monster after monster, big fight with the dragon at the end, lots of gold, treasure, rewards, glorious deeds. It must have set the template for a lot of fantasy that followed. I think it did, but also I think it was Tolkien's sort of transformation of that that did a lot of that. I was just thinking about, you know, what is the appeal of, of Beowulf? And I think a lot of it is in the same appeal that you get in a lot of Old English, or what the appeal is, for me at least, is in this kind of so far before sort of modern civilization. there's this real sense of, it's quite bleak. So in some ways it's very different to like modern fantasy or even, you know, like Tolkien, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's kind of got a happy ending, right? Beowulf hasn't got a happy ending. And it's kind of, it's similar to, if, you know, old English poems like The Wanderer about someone who's been exiled and thinking about the end of civilization. There's so much stuff in Beowulf about the breaking of family ties, the inevitable, what is, you know, great and good and the music and the light in the hall. There's always, always the shadow of the fact that that has ended before for other civilizations and it will end for them too. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of the imagery of having, you know, the light of the hall in Hero. But outside, there's these huge misty fens with these much older creatures in them. And eventually Hero will burn down or be knocked down or whatever. And those fens will still be there. And Grendel and his family will still be there because they belong there. I think that's what I like about it is that sort of, I don't know, brings you back to something bleak there. And you don't really get that the same way in all modern fantasy. Mm. But I think that's a big part of the appeal. Now, a few months ago, when I came to pick you up from the train station, do you remember this? We were driving home and I'd got Planet Rock on. (laughs) And they were like, they were playing Sheep by Pink Floyd, the whole thing. Like, fantastic. And then they said, we've got a 13-minute epic coming up shortly by Marillion. And I was like, you what? (laughs) I've only got digital radio in the car. So we had to take like about a 10-minute detour around the ring road. And out to Finmere to be able to, to be able to listen to the whole of Grendel by uh, Marillion. Oh, yes. I think, Emily, you would agree that is the definitive version now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe it was about Grendel. Yeah. I didn't know that was, that was coming. And then they were talking about Grendel. So exciting. But that, again, is that thing of Grendel is the one that captures the imagination. Maybe because of, you know, that what I was just saying about being out in the representing nature and stuff. But 
I think Fish was very much influenced by the John Gardner book there rather than necessarily by mm. Beowulf itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Right. yeah. The big takeaway for me, made me think about the, the more academic side of it, thinking of the structure of language, is that back in the day, grammar was optional. It was more of a guideline. <laughs> this gives me hope that someday it might come back. <laughs> As someone who has to occasionally edit your work, Matt, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I think they did have grammar. What? Why was grammar optional? That was what you said. There wasn't any hard and fast rules about it had to be used in a particular method, that it was more of a guideline. Oh, they did have rules. They just had different rules. I'm oh. sorry to break your heart. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So they just have like, uh, they have cases instead, right? Kind of like Germanic languages now. Our structure relies on the order of your words, whereas uh, their structure, they'd have slightly different versions of every word to show if it was the active or the passive or, or whatever, the object or and stuff like that. So you could restructure your sentences a lot because we now just have cases in terms of pronouns. So we have like he, him, his are all different cases for the same thing because you use it, it means the same person, right? But it means in a different place in a sentence. They'd have that for all their words. So that just allows you a lot more flexibility in how you how you structure your sentences. Sorry, I like talking about grammar. <laughs> so no, they did have grammar. But <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> I live in hope that one day things will become a lot more chaotic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, d- despite dashing my hopes there, thank you very much, Emily, for that. That certainly brought back a lot of memories <laughs> from my English lit and English uh, language courses as well. So that's, that's been a long time since I've looked at that. Thank you for having me. It was good to have a, an opportunity to talk about this kind of stuff. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. After all our talk of the heroes of old, let's talk about some modern-day heroes, our backers. First of all, thank you very much to anyone who listens to the podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who's ever backed us at any stage. And we have a few new heroes whose praises we want to sing now. Not actually sing, because we don't do that anymore. But Yes, yes not all heroes wear capes, but they do all back us on Patreon. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Right. So the first thanks this week goes out to S. Go. Thank you very much, Esco. Our next thanks go out to Stuart Dobson. So thank you very much, Stuart. And thank you very much to Noah Fortner. And next, thank you to Steve Payne. And I hope I pronounced this right. Thank you very much to the singular Vanillitone. And thank you very much to Timothy Noddings. And finally, thanks to Linus Buryessen. And as always, if we have mangled your name, and I'm sure I probably have, then apologies. And if you get in touch, then we will give it another shot. Now, recently, I had the pleasure of uh, joining one of our backers in a, an online team on a pub quiz. He told me that he had played my pronunciation of his name to his wife to great hysterics. Uh, now, so a big thanks to uh, one of our Swedish backers. And I'm going to give it another shot. Hopefully, I can get it right this time. Joachim Wendell. I'm surprised it's only one person that's contacted us so far, then. <laughs> I imagine the rest are suffering in silence. <laughs> it's, at least it provided amusement for his wife, which is good. 
Okay, well, uh, I think three interesting tomes there. Hmm. And perhaps our first true tome, really. I think Beowulf pretty much counts as a tome. I don't know, maybe not. but Certainly good old stretch across different ranges of time as well as genre there. Yeah. But anyway, if these books are of interest to you, that you might look them out and give them a read and let us know what you think. As ever, we'll put links in the show notes. So if you're interested in any of these, well, we'll help you find them. We're like matchmakers that way, <laughs> only with books. And until next time, it's a goodbye from me. A cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello. BlasphemousTomes.com Are we going to try to work a Meridian reference into every episode now?